I hate seeing people in pain. To this day, it's still it's something tough. I have to work through. But like the reality is, and I know for myself as a human being, the hardest, most painful times of my life were like the most worth it. They taught me the most important things. And I think that sometimes now in society, and it's good that you're aware of this, but I feel like a lot of, I saw so many clients and, and as parents, they constantly tried to protect their child from any pain, all pain. And I know it's going to be so hard to not do that. And it's, it's easier said than done. Yeah. Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. If you're doing it the right way, anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. According to today's guest, your attachment style can be the key to unlocking a fulfilling life. Thais Gibson is the founder of the Personal Development School, and she's the author of the new book, Learning Love, How to Build Fulfilling and Fail-Free Relationships. Her YouTube channel has racked up over 200,000 subscribers in just a couple of years and is quickly approaching 40 million views. And after this episode, you will know why. We start off by talking about her difficult childhood and the resulting Vicodin addiction, which really became the catalyst to figuring all this out for herself. Then we really dive deep into the difference between your conscious and subconscious mind, and we talk about how to transform your internal dialogue. We also talk about the three ways that you get programmed, which really led into a fascinating conversation about raising kids. And be sure to watch till the end because she actually gives us a mini masterclass on how to determine which attachment style you are. All of this and so much more in this fascinating conversation with Thais Gibson. Oh, we got here Friday. It was so much fun. It was like we went around the strip. The last time I was here was like 10 years ago. I'm 33 now. I, was, I think I was like 21 at the time. Okay. Spent all my money. <laughs> <laughs> Almost got stuck here permanently. I was like, I'm never sense. going back. And so this time I was like, okay, I don't know if I want to go to Vegas. But, <laughs> <laughs> but got here. I had so much fun. We like went around all the different places, went to all the cute little restaurants and yeah. and yeah, did like the morning blend TV show, a whole bunch of different stuff. So oh, it's cool. been a really good time. And then after this, we're like leaving, going straight to LA. Okay. And then and doing Are you or driving? driving. Okay. Yeah. I'm excited to do the drive. And then we're going there and then San Diego and then leaving on Monday. Wow, man. Yeah. Busy. All the spots. Busy time, yeah. yeah. What are you doing in LA? I just other podcasts. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. cool. Doing a little like podcast run around. A little tour. Yeah. yeah. So what was the main reason behind trying to book some podcasts? like we are trying to basically allocate budget as a company and okay. we think like media spend will be the next big place like we do like mm -hmm. all of our facebook and google ads but like we're hitting the same kind of roi on campaigns sure and then i wrote my second book and there's a lot of people who like our youtube channel did really well like it doesn't we have only like 220,000 subscribers but we have like 40 million views and what's happened over the past few years is we found like this niche with attachment theory and i think Lots of people are like, oh, this is a good niche. This is good content. And then I just noticed so many people like using the content that we published. We made it yeah. like intellectual property, like trademarked it all, copyrighted it. But it just seems to be circulating around the internet from other people now. I was and it was like, we have to go be a leader in the space. We have to do a lot more PR kind of stuff. I was noticing that on your channel because I was you know, doing a little bit of research for this and noticing that the majority of, at least the higher, the like top performing videos have, are like mostly related to that. Yeah. Was that yeah. intentional yeah. at all? No, it no, just no. kind of fell into it. It just fell into it, yeah. So I did, I ran a client-based practice before for like, I don't know how many years it's been. 
yeah, like almost eight years before we started PDS four years ago. And then we were going through and just that just took, like, I, I was working on like a whole bunch of subconscious mind stuff with people, like how to recondition your core wounds, your limiting beliefs, or like find out your needs and communicate and like, just like personal work with people. And mm-hmm. then started putting a little bit of content on YouTube and it just grew really, really quickly. Hmm. When, what year was that? That was 2019, I think. 2019. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's officially get this thing started and go way back in time then. Okay. Because I, I'm curious to hear how we got to 2019 when you started publishing YouTube videos. Let's go like eight years old. Just eight paint, years paint old. the picture for me, <laughs> set the scene. Parents, okay. you know, where were you? What were you up to at eight years old? Okay. Eight years old. So I grew up in a really chaotic family household. What Parents do you mean by went that? through really extreme fighting. CPS comes to my house pretty often as a kid. Just a lot of like really intense things. A lot of like my parents were very intense people, fought like cats and dogs, 15-year divorce, people in and out of jail, like a lot of chaos in my household as a kid. I have a much younger sister. She's like seven years younger. So she would have been a year old. And I definitely felt like I was like the protector, like mm-hmm. look out for her, really make sure that she's like, okay, keep her out of the drama. So no more siblings, and you and your younger that's sister. That's it. Yeah. Okay. And so I think so I kind of, you kind of felt almost alone in that sense. Like yeah, hey, I, when it's that big of a difference, it's like, doesn't feel as much like a sibling as it does. Like you said, somebody you kind of have to take care of, especially when the chaos is that high. Yeah. I, I definitely felt like when she came into the world, like, okay, I'm not alone in this anymore like someone else understands because as a kid you see these like crazy things and like you can't go tell your friends or at Mm -hmm. least I didn't know how to have those conversations at eight years old you kind of feel like whoa and I actually for a long time thought like these are everybody's family exactly you think it's normal whatever you raise what you think is normal because there's zero other context into what any form of something healthy looks like you're just like oh this chaos is totally normal and then (laughs) you kind of start growing up and you go like Hmm. Maybe not. <laughs> it seems like like not everybody's <laughs> owning each other all the time. Yeah. Definitely. So grew up in that. And then over time, I started playing soccer. That was kind of like my outlet as a kid. Loved that. Felt like so in love with that. I think okay. that was one thing I felt like I had like control over in a way. Was going on trying to get a soccer scholarship to go to like a D1 school. Tenth grade was my like sort of first major scouting year. Had knee surgery. Got Oof. immediately addicted to opiates. Like just immediately addicted. Hmm. And didn't even know what addiction was when that was happening to me. So you I get just knee knew. surgery and they actually prescribed you something? Yes. What did they prescribe you? Vicodin. They prescribed yeah. Vicodin. Yeah. And, and then, But that was, I just built a relationship to Vicodin I, immediately. But how did you, like, they just continually gave you more prescriptions? No. You started figuring out how to get it from other people? Or? Yes. Okay. So there was actually a girl who was a year older and she played lacrosse and she, like, was kind of like a crazy girl just out there mm. doing whatever. And I was kind of talking to her one day and she was saying like, oh, these are good performance enhancers too. And I had this like fear in my mind, like, like, okay, I have to recover in my scouting year from this knee surgery and get back as soon as I can. And like try and my, for me, like soccer, like a soccer scholarship to the U S from Canada was also a meal ticket out of my home mm-hmm. and like away from the chaos. Yeah. And so it like, so by the time you're 15, you have like a really clear understanding that this is absolutely not normal. Yes. I need to get out of here. Yeah, a lot of anger too, honestly. So I was like trying to get out, you know, do whatever I could. And this girl would sell them to me. And she sort of convinced me into it at the beginning. But I already knew, like, I think I felt so much emotion. And I was like a very sensitive person. And it just like, I was just sponging everything up from so many people around me. And I think that it was like, oh, 
this makes everything kind of feel more numb. Like this makes everything say, feel like, a little easier. It's pretty easy to get sold into taking Vicodin more. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's pretty great. Especially for me at that point in my life. Yeah. Like I was like, okay, this is wonderful. There's a reason why yeah. that wasn't just you struggling with this. Like, yes. you know, like she probably didn't have to pitch you that hard on Literally. why you should continue. Like when you're taking it, you're kind of looking for like, ah, oh, maybe my head does hurt a little bit more, you know? Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Totally understandable, especially coming from that situation. Yes. So I think it was sort of this like, okay, you know, I went through my first experience of withdrawals, like not that long, you know, within that first year. Yeah. I didn't even know what was going on. Like, I didn't even know what they were when I was, and it was sort of like, okay, I'm like trying to like research things online a little, like don't really know that much. Did you ever see that? There's a, I think a documentary out now. About on, the Sackler family? Yeah. Did yeah. you watch that? I, it's so funny. We were just watching it when we, like when we got into the hotel late, the first oh, night really? that we arrived here. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was funny. Like I almost was nervous to watch it. Like I was sort of like avoiding it. I'd heard about it for a long time. Yeah. So I was like, oh, it's going to like make me feel a lot of those sort yeah, of like right. feelings. And it feels like such a distant world ago for me, but yeah, yeah. actually watching it was like, okay, this is good. It's I'm glad that people intense. are speaking about stuff like that. No kidding. I was like a little bit too late to it. Cause I, I had, I had surgeries and stuff growing up playing basketball a bunch and they would never give me anything that would actually take my pain away. It was actually frustrating oh, for me at the time. Cause like I went back into the doctor after I had uh, ankle reconstructive surgery and they prescribed me like, it was either Norco or like 800 milligram ibuprofen or something like that. Okay, yeah. And it was just like, but my ankle got infected after the surgery and I was in like the most pain I've ever been in, at least to that point in my life. And I went back to the doctor and was like, I like, this is not working at all. Like I'm feeling a lot of pain. Like yeah, I'm at yeah. like an eight on this scale, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they still would not give me anything because of my age and my gender. Wow. Like, well, we can't, we literally like can't prescribe anything stronger than this to like young men. Your no age. way. And where were you living at the time? I feel like Southern California. Okay. So maybe mm. it's a little bit different there. Yeah. So Florida like, I think I was like right like, around the time where they were like, Hmm, like maybe it's attention. not good to like give kids this literally heroin like drug, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? It's probably not a good idea to continue doing this and I feel for like, so many reasons. I feel like that's like the, the, the vast minority of people that actually are, were paying attention or weren't just like sort of thinking, okay, yeah, make well, some if money it comes off from of the this. doctor. Like you just, you don't even think about it. 100%. You don't think twice, like what you're saying, yeah. like you didn't know what it, like you didn't know exactly what they were giving you or what it was. Cause yeah. like your doctor just goes, Hey, take this. And you go, okay. That trust barrier. Yeah. It just is not exist. Like there's just no barrier to trusting your doctor. you just kind of accept that whatever they say is gotta be the right thing. They're the doctor. 100%. Who am I to question them? You know? Yeah. So you just take whatever they give you. And especially when it makes you feel really good, <laughs> you kind of go like, <laughs> well, why not? Thanks yeah. doc. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this girl was somebody that you obviously trusted or looked up to in some, to some, to some degree. degree. Yeah. Then you just kind of go down this, keep going down yes, this path. Like absolute rabbit hole. And, and so for me, like I, I got scared within a year. I was like, okay, what's going on? And so I would sit down at night and I would like write in this journal and I would write like, okay, I'm going to avoid her in the hallway. I'm going to delete her phone number. I'm going to, you know, all mm. these things, all these strategies. And then there was like more people who I knew who were, you could get them for, you know, it kind of like expanded me to this network of the other people. Okay. Network, I'm going to delete yeah. the, yeah. I'm going to delete these people's phone number, you know, like all these things. And I would sit down and be like, I'm, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. And then I would never change. Mm. And for me, like if you've ever known somebody who's been through something like this, like the, for me, at least the, the most torturous part was like how, 
many times I would say, this is it. This is the end. I'm going to get clean. I'm going to do all these Mm. things. And then like every day I would just lose the battle to myself. And that just felt like such a repetitive thing. So defeating. So defeating. And it bred so much like self-loathing, like Mm -hmm. so much like inner negativity. And I got to this point where I was like, this is just terrible. Managed to get a soccer scholarship to like a smaller D1 school, went off, lived in just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. In one of my psychology classes, somebody said to me one day, and I was like high functioning, but like, I was a mess. Like, sure. I, yeah, I got to school, but like, I was like, just barely like I, hanging by a thread in life. Yeah. And somebody said to me, oh, your conscious mind can't outwill or overpower your subconscious mind. And like, I remember thinking like this person just explained everything in my life. Hmm. Like, like here I am every day being like, I'm going to get clean. I'm going to change. I'm going to like avoid people. I'm going to, and then my subconscious obviously has different motives mm-hmm. and like wants to figure out to how to just keep numbing pain. And so for me, like all of a sudden in that moment, I was like, I know this is going to be my ticket to being okay. And I was scared because you get drug tested by the NCAA. I didn't know like how often, like when that was going to happen to me. It's like people are randomly selected for your, sure. from your team. Like I was like, I'm probably going to lose my scholarship in the four years that I'm here. Like, I don't know what's going to, what's going to happen. And so I was like, I have to go figure out what the subconscious is, like how this really works and how this operates. And I became obsessed, like literally obsessed with just like researching everything I could. And like one of the first things that I heard or read was that 95 to 97% of your beliefs, your thoughts, your emotions, your actions are subconscious and your conscious is three to 5%. And I'm like, no wonder every day I go through this pattern. So then I started being like, okay, well, what else is there? Like how, like what's in my subconscious? Why am I feeling this way? And one of the first tools that I sort of write about is like, well, if you meditate, you can start observing all of these subconscious like autopilot thoughts that you have. Hmm. So I remember sitting down for my first time to like meditate. This is like, you know, however many years ago now, like 12, 14 years ago, somewhere in there. And no one's doing stuff like this, right? That, you know, that's not, it's not as like trendy as it is now. And so I sat down and I was like, I remember sitting and closing my eyes and, and trying to be like, okay, observe your thoughts. And the first thing I thought was like, you're going to fail at this. Like you fail at everything else. Mm. You're not going to make it. You can't do any of this. And I, I realized in this one moment, like, Oh, (laughs) this internal dialogue sucks. No wonder I'm running, trying to numb myself all day. I'm actually numbing my inner world because Mm. my inner world is made up of all of this crap that I've internalized. Mm. And, you know, I came to learn that like, there's three ways we get programmed, what you see repeatedly, what you hear repeatedly and what's modeled to you. So I was sponging in the chaos of my home. My internal dialogue was largely the internalized dialogue I grew up around. And then I was carrying that with me everywhere I went. And then I was trying to numb and run from it. And it was like, I just started having all these like breakthroughs of like, oh, I get why I do what I do now. It's not about being a failure. It's not being, you know, about not being strong enough to kick something. It's like, there's so much deeper stuff here than that. So I became obsessed with learning. It took me like a little while to get clean after that. Wasn't like just this easy road, but... Wasn't an aha moment. Yeah, (laughs) it wasn't like a singular event. But I really unpacked so much stuff for myself, like all of my different like wounds that I was carrying around, why, really learned to like repair. I had a lot of like big trust issues in my life and in relationships, really like healed those up, like just so many... Like I'm forever grateful for that whole journey because it like took me into a much different place in the relationship to myself. And then as I got sober and as time went on through that path, I I was like, how come nobody's talking about this? Hmm. So I eventually moved back home. Were you in school this whole time? Yes. So there was like playing soccer. Yeah. 
yeah, playing soccer, transferred out, went lived in Miami for a little bit, wasn't clean then yet. I kind of like squished together a couple of years there, but yeah, there was okay. a, a couple of year period. And then from Miami was trying to kind of stay in the US long term and then just didn't couldn't, it's not so easy to do. So went back home. And ultimately that was probably good for me because I was still around a lot of people when I was like just getting into a good place. Like I lived in South Beach, which probably isn't the best place for just getting, getting clean. clean. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> you don't go to South Beach. Exactly. To, to search for sobriety. Typically. Exactly. Yeah. So got out of there and then got home. And I just felt like I was just really sober when I was home and, and in a really like, not just sober, like literally not using, but just like in a really good headspace. Did, did you go home like home home like where you Canada like to, yeah, Toronto or, but not back to where your parents were living no so I left home for school when I was 17 mm-hmm. went to the US Georgia about four years Miami another few years came back home and then stayed with my mom for like three months my parents were separated at this point then stayed with my dad for a couple months gotcha. which was like this really big growth period because he and I had traditionally like really butted heads so we like worked through a lot of our stuff hmm. and I, that was like another thing I had a period when I was away at school where I didn't talk to my parents for for quite some time yeah and like I came back being like okay I'm here for a reason I'm going to repair, like I'm going to work through things that I'm holding on to, like resentments. I'm going to learn how to forgive, like, and saw everything as kind of like a spiritual opportunity, if that makes sense, to grow. And like, and so um, worked through a lot of stuff in in that period of time. And then was like, how come nobody is talking about the subconscious mind? Like, what about everybody else suffering from addiction? What about people who suck at at following through their New Year's resolutions because it's their subconscious holding them back? What about, like, I just, I couldn't believe that it wasn't, like, all over. And so I started giving free workshops. So I just, I was, like, 21 or something at the time, maybe 22, and just started giving workshops for free and doing them in, like, little libraries or whatever. And then eventually a lot of people would come in person. Like, we had, like, 100 people there sometimes. And I, people would be like, do you see clients? And I was like, well, I'm still finishing school. Like I'm not really supposed to be seeing clients. And people were like, just see us as a coaching client, like just see us. And so I did that, built like a really busy practice, did that for like eight years, had about a two year wait list. And then so it just became kind of like a life coach or something. Yeah. 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 I still finished like schooling. I'm like effectively a counselor. Oh, you so you Um, finished school in Canada while you were doing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Where's your sister? During this entire time, like she's still living with one of your parents? With my mom, yeah. So my parents, it was kind of nice in a sense too, because like they separated when I went to school. Mm -hmm. So they like, they were like literally fully like in like separate places at that point. So it kind of felt like, okay, we're not like leaving her too much in the chaos. You think they were better off that way? Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I feel like there's people who are meant to not be together and like, it's really healthy. And I really don't believe people should just like, the funniest part is they had this like idea, like stay together for the kids. And it's like, People get programmed by stuff like that. You yeah. want to have, right. and, and they're you think you're happier. Doing the right thing, yeah. But it ends up actually being more damaging to everybody 100%, involved. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I get that there's like fears and it's not always so easy, but they're both way better off for it for That's sure. Good. Like healthier. So your sister potentially might have had a little bit of a, you know, light at the end of the tunnel for her high school years and stuff like that. Because yeah. she would be what, early 20s now? Or yeah. mid 20s? Right now she's in her mid 20s. Yeah. 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 So she, yes and no, there was like some chaos with like child support stuff. So yeah. they did like live in like a basement of like a family friend's house. Like there was like some choppy moments for her too, for sure. sure. Yeah. And like still being back and forth, but it was definitely a lot easier than what it would have been otherwise. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Okay. So, okay. So I think we're caught up on timeline now. So where, so you, you start building this practice, private clients, you're seeing yes. people, yeah. helping them work through subconscious issues or trauma yeah. that they might have essentially. Yes. And then- 
does this take us all the way up to starting to put stuff on YouTube or is there something yeah. in between there? So basically then I get to a point where I have this really long wait list and people are kind of getting frustrated with me because I'm like, oh yeah, it's like two years. And then people kind of like follow up or I'll try to like keep my email list with those people who are on the wait list and touch yeah. base and people are getting frustrated. And I also for sure have boundary work to do still. It's one thing I haven't worked on very much at the time. And I have this like bit of a guilt complex. Like, sure. oh, like people will be like, oh, my my brother like is going through this thing or that thing. And I can empathize because I yeah. know what it's like to be in pain. And I'm like, oh, so I'm, I'm seeing way too many clients, yeah. like way too many working way too many hours. And I'm like teetering in this like kind of pre-burnout stage at the same time, but I yeah. love what I'm doing and I'm like justifying it pretty easily. And and so I'm like, okay, there's gotta be kind of a better way here. So within that period of time as well, I'm going through this whole process. And originally I was working with people on like their core wounds, right? So basically what happens is when we have trauma, we make it mean something about ourselves because our subconscious mind is essentially seeking certainty. Hmm. So an example of this would be if you grow up in a household where there is all these like, you know, all this chaos, like for me, as an example, you see all this betrayal between people and between parent to child as well. So you, you give meaning to it. You're like, okay, well, I can't trust anybody. I'm going to be betrayed. And your subconscious gives meaning to things because it's trying to protect you from these things. And these pieces of meaning become a part of your worldview because your subconscious essentially forms this like lens that you see and interact with the world through. So I start seeing this whole like worldview of, okay, well, I will be betrayed. And then, you know, I start having all these other, oh, I am unsafe, you know, around people or I'm unsafe being vulnerable or opening up. And then, you know, I'm afraid to be trapped or helpless or powerless because I've had experiences like that. So we have these like core, they're called core wounds. And they're essentially these like core pieces of meaning that you give to your world. And when you can recondition those, you're really like dealing with roots of trauma. Like you're actually able to kind of clear out a lot of stuff and how it's imprinted you. Mm. And so I've been doing so much work on that on myself and then learning like my needs, learning how to emotionally regulate, like learning how to like actually have a healthy relationship to my emotions, regulate my nervous system. I've learned so many things. So I'm teaching people all these things in in these client sessions and going through like these key areas. And then at one point I go back to attachment styles. Have you ever heard of attachment styles before? Okay. So there's, there's, I'll go down a rabbit hole for just a second here. So there's four main attachment styles. I actually learned about this like first year university, but it was very high level. And so everybody has an attachment style and your attachment style is basically the subconscious set of rules. You learn about how to relate to people, how to connect with people. Okay. So there's a secure attachment style that that's about nowadays, 30% of the population research shows about 20 years ago is closer to 50 secure. People do well in relationships. They tend to communicate effectively. They get secure parenting and modeling growing up. And so they tend to think that like, Hey, I can rely on people. I can trust people. I can open up to people. Hmm. I can communicate my emotions to people. Conflict is solvable. We can hash it out. We can work through things that's secure people. Then there's three insecure styles. At one kind of like end of the continuum, you have somebody who's anxious, preoccupied, and they tend to have like a lot of abandonment fears in childhood. They will tend to either have like really loving parents who work a lot. So there's like a lot of love, but then it's like always sort of being taken away and that will create a lot of perceived abandonment. Hmm. Now, how the subconscious is programmed is through repetition plus emotion over time. So what happens is if, if love is there and then pulled away, love is there and then pulled away, you get programmed to fear the, the pulling away. So anxious people make up a good portion of the population and they have a lot of wounds around their core wounds that we were talking about are like, I will be abandoned. I will be alone. I will be excluded, disliked, not good enough, rejected. So these are like the big core fears based on like their childhood kind of trauma. 
at the exact opposite end of the continuum, there's a dismissive avoidant. Dismissive avoidants gen generally grew up with some form of childhood emotional neglect. And a lot of the time, it's like fly under the radar emotional neglect. It's not like really obvious. You know, they sure. can have a healthy family, food's on the table, everything's good. But like if you express emotions, you're a crybaby. We don't want to hear about mm -hmm. it. Toughen up, man up, you sure. know, and it happens to women too. But basically, you don't get a lot of like, attunement from caregivers are not very present mm -hmm. and then they're also not emotionally available so this child who's actually wired for attunement we're all wired for that kind of presence and connection they can't conceive of like oh my parents are emotionally unavailable to me so they go there must be something wrong with me my emotions are bad they're weak i'm going to disconnect from that and i'm going to mm -hmm. repress that part of myself and so as they get older and they go into their adult relationships they're the ones who like as soon as they feel vulnerable as soon as they have to like they feel really attached to somebody they're like this yeah. part of me is bad and they'll often like f struggle to commit and they'll fear and they'll run away this is the alpha male culture Maybe. <laughs> I would argue that you could have like a healthy, secure alpha male. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but some of the like... No, the red yeah. pill, like I'm saying, like yeah, that exactly. movement is yes. more what I mean by that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so there's this like imbalance, right? Where it's like, okay, just repress this part of yourself, disconnect, all these different things. So then you have your middle one. So this is what I was. I was a fearful avoidant. So fearful avoidants like have both sides because they have good experiences with connection, but they also have bad experiences with connection. So they have conflicting ideas about the same thing. Hmm. So like my, that made my experience and they struggle to trust. And so my experience in a lot of relationships growing up was like, you know, people get close. I want closeness. I want that connection. And then they get too close. And then I like run away in the other direction. And so it's a lot of like kind of hot and cold kind of behavior. Mm. So every person has an attachment style. Those are the four main ones. And what was funny is that I started seeing clients and then kind of went back to attachment styles, just like reading about it a little bit. And then I realized like, oh, every attachment style, the attachment styles traditionally, how it was created was like, you can find a child's attachment style. It kind of affects our adult romantic relationships. There was no work on like how to heal it, how to change it, what the core wounds were, what the needs of each style were, hmm. all these things that I had learned. So I realized that you could actually package, you could actually see that like each attachment style had unique core wounds that were really specific, like dismissive avoidance are afraid of being trapped, helpless, powerless, seen as defective or shameful, seen as, seen as weak. And then fearful avoidance have both sides. They have the abandonment wounds and the trapped wounds, but then the trust wound is a big one. So I realized like, oh, as soon as I know somebody's attachment style, I know their core wounds. I know their needs. I know their emotional patterns that they'll deal with. I know how they set boundaries or lack thereof and how they communicate and, mm -hmm. and how to improve that. And so it was like, oh, well, I can just help people change their attachment style. That was sort of like missing from like traditional attachment theory research was like, hey, someone has an attachment style. There was no like, here's how you solve for it. Was it was just all about awareness, exactly. not necessarily about solving the problem. Exactly. So I was like, oh, well, we can just do like subconscious reconditioning on stuff like this. So my practice kind of like evolved into seeing people in relationship issues and like helping them become securely attached by healing their attachment style. Because yeah. that was the work I did a lot first so with myself. And so that I just think was like also happened to be a trending topic. I put a little bit of content out on YouTube. I put my first like 10 videos the first 10 videos were like needs and boundaries and like self-love yeah. and all these different things and then attachment styles. And like, I remember my first few videos had like 50 views on YouTube and then the attachment styles, the first video I put out had like 2000 views from like, hmm. you could see where there was a need, right? Mm -hmm. And where there was a niche. And so I just started creating more content like that. I think that was the beginning of 2019 or so. And then by the end of 2019, I was like, okay, there's a market here. There's, I can take all this wait list of people, create courses, 
package it, scale it, put it online. And our YouTube channel grew really quickly organically after that. And then yeah. that was kind of, that was the journey to, to pretty much now. I'm sure there was a lot of 2020 people that came into the YouTube yes. channel uh, for <laughs> many COVID. reasons. One of which being that just people are at home watching YouTube, Absolutely. but also because a lot of these issues were, I think, things that were really at the top of people's like awareness during that time. When you Absolutely. have got nothing but time, you know, you tend to get more introspective. You either like covered up with drugs and alcohol yep. or you get really introspective and start searching for answers and stuff. So yeah. probably didn't hurt the trajectory yes. of the channel at the time. Either. <laughs> it was good timing for yeah. sure. Yeah. Where are you headed now? Like where, where, like if you're kind of setting a course for the next, you know, five years, 10 years, yeah. where do you view like kind of the next step of your journey? Yeah. Good question. I am planning to have kids probably okay. next year, start the whole journey. Good for you. And I, that was something I was terrified of when I was a kid. I was like, I'm never having kids. I'm never yeah. getting married. All these yeah. things that I actually really appreciate now. And I'm, I think I'm going to start creating more courses around like attachment-based parenting. I know how I am. Okay. I'm the type of like person where as soon as I read something and it's useful, I just want to like tell everybody, like just give it away. Like, yeah. like, oh my gosh, everybody needs to know this. So I know that I'm going to like start that whole process, probably be reading all these books about pregnancy, read all these books about like toddlers, <laughs> you know, and then do a lot of education there myself. So then I'll just want to naturally put sort of courses together around it. It's also something our community asks for a lot. Yeah. So I think yeah. that'll be sort of, and that's again, like kind of a missing niche out there. Like that's kind sure. of like how to parent for secure children. I was going to say, well, that's where my mind immediately goes anymore. Like yeah. you kind of have that, you know, whatever's top of your awareness, you know, is what you're searching for in the conversation. So like when you're talk going about all these attachment styles, I'm like, okay, so I have two kids. Yeah. How do I make sure <laughs> that I do at least my best to make sure that they end up having, you know, exactly. the secure attachment style. Exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, is that something that you feel like you can speak into without having kids? Or do you feel like do you feel like having kids will allow you to kind of like discover that a little bit more? So I've done a lot of like content on it because people ask and there's yeah. a lot of really amazing stuff out there and there's a lot of like really cool like sort of trends like conscious parenting. I can definitely share some of that stuff yeah, and please. talk about it for a moment. But but I from, from a content space, I'm going to be like really putting a focus there. I feel like it's like almost like inauthentic to be like, oh, I'm going to tell people how to parent when I'm not a parent yet yeah. myself. Like yeah. I so like I can share research, but like I like to feel like I'm like fully in alignment with stuff that sure. I'm doing. And so I feel like I'll wait for that chapter of life to really build that momentum. But in terms of parenting for securely attached kids, there's some, what some does really, the data say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a few good things. The first three years of a child's life are the most important because we, we developed the most unconscious program. So if you think of like, great. So my son's already fucked up. So <laughs> focus like, on the daughter. <laughs> He's four. <laughs> the good thing about no matter what happens, I'm sure you're an amazing parent, first of all, but, but the good thing about whatever happens is that, you know, the first it's like zero to three are most suggestible. You're basically like just in a state of hypnosis from zero a, to three. It's a blank canvas. Exactly. Yeah. And you are like hyper sponging up information. So zero to three and three to eight, you're producing mostly alpha and theta brainwaves, which are the brainwaves you need when you're hypnotized. And that was one of my like sort of certifications I did was in hypnosis, all that kind of stuff. And so you have this like hyper suggestible space, but you also have like hyper learning. So if there's something that you were to think, for example, your child has a core wound, you can also counteract it pretty easily before the age of eight. So a few things that are really important are number one presence and attunement it's like arguably the most important thing that you can really give to a child like children are wired for that and when there's a lack of it 
Children do a few things. They, number one, if they are lacking that like attunement and presence, it doesn't have to be 24-7, but a good quality amount of it for mm-hmm. you know each day of, of the week. If you're lacking that, then the child who's wired and yearning for that goes, okay, well, there must be something wrong with me that I'm not getting that need met. They don't know how to communicate their needs yet, so they can't really do much about it. And then oftentimes, I find a lot of parents, what they do is then they reward their child or give them a lot of care when the child does something good. Mm-hmm. If there's a lot of rewarding a child in the absence of presence, it conditions a child at a subconscious level to think, well, I have to earn my worth all the time. I only get love when I do good. Mm. So now I go out into the world and I have this unworthy core wound and I have to constantly earn my worth from other people and from doing things for them or from, you know, all these different sort of behaviors where it's like people pleasing and like inherent in people pleasing, there's a form of self-abandonment, right? You go outside of like your, your truth, your connection to self and being present, being attuned are huge. Another big thing is if you ever see that your child has a core wound, like, If your child feels not good enough or unworthy or afraid of abandonment or afraid of being alone or feeling trapped easily, like helpless, powerless, anything like that, you know, part of what we do is we fire and wire new neural pathways that oppose that original core wound. So like if you have a child who's constantly putting themselves down or feeling not good enough, just like firing and wiring like the evidence for how they are good enough, you know, letting them know all the things you do see about them and do appreciate about them. That tends to be a really important part of secure parenting is like having the ability to do that. And then children need to learn to negotiate their needs. This is like one of the most important things. So it's really easy for a parent to, I think, teach a child to be obedient. But obedience is dangerous, right? Mm. Like we don't live in a world, like if you teach a child how to be obedient, it's not teaching a child. Like those are the people as adults that are honestly most often in abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. The people Mm -hmm. who are constantly trying to people please and stay in this like line of obedience. And so they disconnect from like their own inner guidance that way. It's really important. Even if a child, like let's say one of your kids is like, dad, you know, let's say they should have been in bed already. It's like 10 PM. And they're like, Hey, I really want to eat candy. And they're getting upset. I'm not going to bed. I want candy. It doesn't mean like be a permissive parent and say like, oh, here's your candy, honey. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) That's not the point of it. But it's to validate their needs. It's to let them know that their needs are seen and heard. So to say something like, hey, honey, I know you really want candy. I understand. But if you eat the candy, you're going to have a stomach ache. You're not going to sleep well. So tomorrow, if you eat your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you can have a little bit of candy after dinner. So it's this ability to like validate, to hear, to see. And what you're teaching is healthy communication and negotiation in the process. And you're teaching a child to speak up for themselves. And what happens if people don't have their needs seen like that? Is, and I know this was an experience I had is like, I, I wouldn't tell anybody my needs. I thought that telling yeah, your, your yeah, needs yeah. to somebody was like the scariest thing ever. And you know, then you don't speak up and then you expect people to mind read your needs as an adult too. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> you're like, they should know if they love me. Right. Whereas, you know, you learn the hard way, like, no, like nobody's going to mind read anything. I have to communicate what it is that I need to people in my life. And that only strengthens your relationship so much in doing so. So boundaries, needs, Opposing core wounds, presence attunement, like those are the really big, big things. That's why I feel like parenting is one of the craziest personal development experiences that you can go through because it's, I've just kind of accepted the fact that I'm going to screw something up and my kids are going to be in therapy when they're 25 going through stuff that I messed up. And it's it's like, it's just like a thing that I'm, I know is going to happen no matter how much I try to make it not happen. After accepting that as a truth, I think now it's just really trying to make sure that they make it through without me completely stripping away everything that makes them uniquely them. Mm. Even if it's something that butts heads with like a philosophy that I hold near and you know what I'm saying? So 100%. like my daughter the other night was 
being really stubborn. She's in this kind of really stubborn phase. My wife was telling me about it because I, I wasn't there. I was out doing something. And then I came back and then she was like, oh, you, you won't believe what your daughter said to me. You know what I mean? And she was just kind of telling me something that she did or something that she said. And then I appreciated the way that she handled it because I was just like, I, I want to be careful, especially with my daughter, to not take away that strong spirit because that yes. and that's what I remember and that's what I told my, told my wife just like well it's unfortunate right now for us but like that will serve her well in life yes. you know just so you know you're not allowed to speak that way or like that was rude disrespectful and like you will be like now we're going to take away this episode of the show is brought to you by indeed we are driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all it's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. This thing from you or like there's a punishment that goes along with that, but also like kind of good job. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> but keep that, keep that stubborn spirit because like that strong emotional like spirit will serve you very well, especially as a woman in society, like making your way through and being successful on your own. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's, it's so hard because like you, you want them to be respectful and you want them to, to obey. But at the same time, like you said, I don't want them to become just robots that yes. are out there doing exactly what they're told all the time. And they're the perfect student who never does anything bad. And they always listen to whoever's telling them. It's just like, well, that's how you end up with people who just are spoon fed yes. by people who they perceive to be trusted authorities and they can't think for themselves. They have no ability to tell somebody no. They have no ability to th work through to difficult things. information yeah. and come up with their own opinion and then stand strong behind that opinion, even in the face of opposition. Like you just, you're not just, like I said, it, just feel, it feels like you're raising more of a robot than you are raising a human who has the ability to like actually do things in the world I, to, to make change for the good and, you know, bring values into the world that actually matter. 
I wholeheartedly agree with that. Wholeheartedly. That, I think that's what makes parenting difficult. And one of the, the biggest tenets, I don't know if you ever read anything from conscious parenting, but mm-hmm. there's like work, there's like a body of work out there called conscious parenting. The first tenant of conscious parenting is allow your child to express their uniqueness. Like the mm-hmm. idea behind it is that they, yes, they come from you, but they're not yours, right? They're yeah. their own human being. And so I love that you said that because that's much. like really on the money. Yeah. People treat their kids like it's their pet. You yes. know, like you will do this and you will go there. You're here the extension you, of me. Yeah, you should be right. doing like your mind. Yes. Like I, like you like, I, well, I don't own my children. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm just here to help them become a good adult. Exactly. Whatever that means for them. Yes. And yeah. to embrace the parts of them that make them them. Yes, exactly. Um, while kind of, st- but that's the, so that's you're the thing. Steering like you, them, you have, you're steering yeah, them. You're guiding them. And you can't just let them do whatever they want. And yes. you can't just let them scream inside of the restaurant because that's disruptive <laughs> and disrespectful. Yes. And you can't do that kind of stuff. But like. Also, if you want to do that and like you want to go splash in the puddle, like go splash in the puddle, you know, like there's some things that I feel like just aren't worth, aren't battles that are worth fighting. And also explaining things, you know, like I think one of the, it sounds so funny to say this, but I think like one of the rites of passage we have, and and some people go through it in their teenage years, some people I actually think never go through it. But one of the rites of passage we have is like, hey, our parents are not perfect people, like Mm. And they're not supposed to be like they're humans, you know, and I know for me when I was starting down my like healing journey, a lot of the forgiveness work I did as like a early, like late teenager, early 20s was, oh, my parents were doing the best that they could because they went through their stuff too. Like they had all of their stuff. And I think that there's something important when like I know how one of the things I intend to do is like tell my kids like I'm not always going to get it right like hey if I make a mistake especially as I get older I'm sorry like I'll take ownership and like be accountable but I feel like sometimes the parent can never be wrong either Mm -hmm. and I see that a lot I saw that a lot because I had a lot of clients who were parents and they would sort of talk to me about how they were working with their kids and you could see like hey sometimes you know the the child comes home from school they're in trouble for yelling at another kid at school and they come home and the parent yells at them and it's like for yelling yeah. at somebody yeah. <laughs> yeah. do not yell <laughs> i told you never to yell and yeah. you're like wait <laughs> how do you not see that so i think like the ability to also share with your children as they get older like hey i'm yeah. a human i'm doing my best i'm not supposed to be perfect yeah and to allow for feedback is really valuable that's been a very surprising thing to me being a parent too is that i always do my best to have conversations with them even when i know they might be too young to really understand exactly what i'm saying mm. it's it's just kind of letting I, I feel like your 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 kid will adapt to the level at which you address them, if that makes yes. sense. So like if yes. you continuously address them as being a kid, yeah, they're going to just sit Stay more into in being a space. kid. Yeah. Whereas if you treat them more like an adult who can have a conversation and can work through difficult issues yes. or work through conflict, then they'll just kind of grow up, you know pursuing that version of themselves, which ultimately is my job. Like it's not my job to pack your lunch and put on your shoes for you for the rest of your life. It's my job (laughs) to teach you how to do those things yourself, you know, and, and even at the expense of my own desire to separate from my kids. Cause like it, it sucks when you watch, when like watching your kids grow up, it's awesome, but it sucks. You know, it's like, well, man, like it's crazy how fast that you're, you know, you're getting older, but also I can't, hold you back because I selfishly want to hold on to the time period where you needed me to help you eat or you needed me to tie your shoes. You needed me to put on your jacket for you. Like I can't prevent you from developing into a better human just because I don't want to let go of this particular stage. And I think, and this is, I know something that I'm going to have to work on as a person because it's still something that I'm a little bit, you know, hit and miss around. But 
I hate seeing people in pain. Like I, mm. to this day, it's still it's something tough. I have to work through. But like the reality is, and I know for myself as a human being, like the hardest, most painful times of my life were like the most worth it. Like the, they taught me the most important things. And I think that sometimes now in society, and it's good that you're aware of this, but but I feel like a lot of, I saw so many clients and, and as parents, they constantly tried to protect their child from any pain, all pain. And I know it's going to be so hard to not do that. And it's, it's easier said than done. Yeah. But like pain I, I, teaches It's very difficult you. for me as a dad, but yes. I can't, my wife and mom's everywhere. I'm sure it's even more so that way because <laughs> just that empathy is so high for your kids. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, it's so like, <clears throat> and sometimes that's like where people learn that like pain is not a bad thing. Like pain it sucks. It can, it can have negative features, but yeah. like it can also teach you some of the most powerful lessons. And I think we kind of live in a society right now. That's like pain is so bad. Every, nobody should have to like push through or work hard yeah. or, and it shouldn't be exclusively that either. Yeah. Like it shouldn't be just everybody knows to the grindstone white knuckle their way through life. But also there's, you know, teaching your child that pain is terrible and you're always a victim of pain isn't right. really valuable either. Well, it's the seeking comfort society where yes. it's just like, we sit in climate controlled rooms and yes. we get in climate controlled vehicles that take us to other climate controlled rooms. Like, you know what I'm saying? We you, totally, that, that's, that's some of the good stuff behind like the cold plunges or the saunas yes. or like running long distances or doing these other totally. practices where it's just like, it's okay to struggle. And the struggle actually makes you it's a good better for person you in a lot of and, ways, right? Sharpens yeah. you, turns you like yes. the obstacles is what turns us into interesting people 100%. without that. We're just a bunch of, you know, brainless yes. <laughs> you know zombies <laughs> that are just going throughout life seeking the next piece of comfort and i always rem- think of that illustration of the the kid who finds the caterpillar and puts it in a jar and wants to watch it bloom into a butterfly and then she is watching this butterfly or watching this caterpillar giving it food for a couple of weeks and then the cocoon forms and then she sees the butterfly try like, struggling to get out of the cocoon And so she opens up the jar and opens up the cocoon to let the butterfly fly. And then what ends up happening is the butterfly falls to the bottom of the jar and never ends up flying out of it, ends up dying in the jar. Hmm. Because the struggle of getting out of the cocoon is what makes the butterfly strong enough to be able to to learn how to fly. And it's just like such a beautiful nature. And I I frankly don't even know the science behind that, like how much of that is actually real. But the story itself is something I've always thought about because as a parent, you have to be willing to watch the jar. And like watch the struggle happen right in front of your eyes, knowing damn well that at any second you could reach in and make all of the pain go away. Yeah. But you got to just let it happen. Yeah. Because if you don't, they're never going to learn how to deal with it on their own. I totally agree. And the fact is, I'm not always going to be there. Yeah, 100%. you know, it's like I, I'm not always going to be there. I wish I could, but I don't know what I don't know what tomorrow holds. Like I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like I completely agree. If you're only ever dependent on dad, it's like, of course I want to be super dad. You know who? What dad doesn't want to be? But like, what? I know it's not going to serve my kids long term if I'm always going to be the one to end. Like if I'm the the end all be all, and I'm going to be the one that solves all your problems for you. It's just like, well, what happens if I die young? Yes. What literally, are you going to do? Literally. You know, like how are you going to move through life? And it just ends up being delayed pain at that point, yeah. right? Like whatever right. You're, to- you're stopping somebody from dealing with in the near future, they're just going to pay for in the long term because they're not going to have the adequate right. skills to do things. What's that? Is it called the four turnings? What is the... the Hard times. There's a great quote, and I'm. It's I can't, oh, oh, hard oh, times yeah. make hard strong times. men. Yeah. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Yeah, and weak, weak men, men bring make hard times. times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. I do agree with that. Oh, quite honestly, sure. yeah. yeah, you can see it over and over. It's a cycle that's repeated itself throughout history. You know, yeah. which is like the story of every great civilization is that. Yes, there was struggle, and then there was comfort, and then the comfort yeah. brought 
<laughs> weak people who brought more struggle, who brought, you know what I mean? <laughs> it goes so, around yeah, and around. Yeah, it yeah. does. I, I unfortunately think that we're in a time right now in our country where we're getting close to some of those things. Where I the do comfort, agree with that. The comfort level's been really too high, high for, for a too long time. Yeah. I do agree with that. Yeah. And it, pain's also not as bad when you don't resist it. Like, I feel like we do this thing as people where we have pain and we don't like the pain. And so we also resist that we are in mm-hmm. pain. And then just adds another sort of layer to it. There's, there's something I used to teach this where it's like you have two reasons that you experience pain emotionally, period. You have unmet needs, right? So like, let's say, for example, I love people. I love meeting people. I love talking to people. You put me in like a foreign country where I don't speak the language, you know, alone. I'm going to have a degree of like feeling like, oh, I'm like yearning for connection. And that's going to sting a little bit for some kind of period. I might get homesick, for Mm -hmm. example. And but that pain is there to communicate to you like, hey, go learn the language or go meet people or go pivot, like adapt. And then what we have is we have suffering, which is like the meaning we give to the pain. So Mm. if I went to a new country, I had that experience and I said, oh, I can't meet people because nobody likes me. I can't meet people because I'm not good enough. I'm not interesting enough. I'm not, you know, then we like cause our own suffering and that's excruciating. But like pain in and of itself, if we're not causing our own suffering because we're not telling stories about the pain and if we're actually going in and through the pain, you're going to come out on the other side and you're going to be better for it because it's there for a reason. It's supposed to help you adapt and pivot and grow. Yeah, I love that quote. Pain is guaranteed. Suffering is optional. Yes, I like that. You're going to go through pain and there's going to be problems you're going to experience. Suffering is the meaning that you assign to the pain that you're experiencing. And the bottom line is, like you said, there's no version of life that exists without pain or obstacles or hard times. Like nobody lives a life that is free of those things. Even the people that you think do don't. Absolutely. And they probably experiencing it in a completely and wildly different way that in sometimes might even be more painful, you know, but like people who have like the cushy lives, the trust funds and all that stuff, like they're going to experience pain on a level that maybe somebody who grew up in abject poverty might not even understand. Yes. You know what I mean? So that everybody's going to, everybody's going to experience. And the point is, is like, that's why I choose to do things that make me struggle because I, first of all, want to be prepared yes. when, when things happen that are completely outside of my control. But also I know that I would rather choose this particular pain to help me avoid this particular pain. Like you have, like we all have the ability to design our life in a way that allows us to like engage in the pain that we want and avoid the pain that we don't want. It's just that most people aren't intentional about it. Like you can either be, you can either like budget and be disciplined and save and invest your money and learn how to do that. And it's going to be painful in your twenties and thirties because you're not driving the nice cars or you're not getting the nice house. or you're not going on the nice vacations or doing this thing and doing that thing or going out on the weekends or dropping money on bottle service or whatever. So it might be a little bit of a pain associated with that. But then when you you're 40 that. and you're 50, right? Like you have a bunch of money Freedom. in the bank and you can travel all over the world and you can stay at the four seasons instead of staying in a hostel where you might get kidnapped that night. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you, when you're living that version of life and then these other people who were out here, like doing all this other stuff, they're going to be experiencing pain at a much, much higher degree for the rest of their life because they never learn anything, anything about money. They're tens of thousands of dollars in debt. They had to file bankruptcy three times. They have terrible credit. They live in the slums. They can't buy a car anymore. Like there's, there's going to be pain associated with both of those. You know, 100%. health is the same way. You can you can decide to eat whatever you want to eat whenever you want to eat. You can decide you can to not go to the gym, later, yeah. and then you're going to end up in in the hospital. You're going to end up you know being in your in your 60s and living a life like somebody who's in their 90s because you chose to live the first 40 50 years of your life without any sort of thought or discipline or anything around your health long term. So like 
both things are going to suck is my point. Yes. It's just like, you may as well choose the one that might suck a little bit less and the one that you have control over when the sucking happens. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> oh, it sucks to say no to this thing that I really, really want right now. However, I know that it's also going to suck if I say yes to it because that's the version of life that I'm going to be at in a year from now. And that's going to suck way worse than just saying no to this for the next five minutes. hundred percent. You know, it's just really difficult to do that piece. When I worked with clients, I would see honestly this pattern like over and over and over again, that people who did come in and they had the trust funds, and they had the cushy lives and everything was easy. There was a big group of people I would see in their kind of mid forties, late forties and good people, nothing bad to say about them, but for sure there was a group of people who created their own pain because I swear there's this old quote and I forget who says it, but it says like growth occurs at the border between support and challenge. I would almost see like psychologically with people that if they didn't, if they had too much support, they would make mountains out of molehills, like these yes. little things they were suffering so much over. And it's almost as if like something within us, like a mechanism is seeking that like equilibrium yeah. to grow. And so they would find these like huge, huge challenges and little tiny things, but it's also relevant to, or relative to like, well, how much support do you have to deal with these things? Like you mm -hmm. can have all the support for like, okay, here's the money you need, go take care of it. But like, what about the part where I know how to overcome challenges on my own? And if you're missing that, that becomes its own challenge in and of itself. Yeah, that's why like mental health health problems is a privilege. You know, that's why America, the most privileged country in the, in the world, arguably has the worst mental health problems because like we've taken care of all of the base level problems it, we're of not society. Seeking survival. Yeah. And, like yeah, we're, we're not yeah. worried about where the food's coming from or if our water's clean. We're yeah. not, we're not yeah. worried about that stuff anymore, yeah. but we seek, like we're built to seek problems. Like we're psychologically I, wired. Yeah to like look like for send threats off and, yep, exactly. and deal yep. with those threats accordingly. Yep. You either fight the threat or you get, run away from the, it's fight or flight instinct. Like there, yep. there's so many things that are wired in us biologically from tens of thousands of years of humans evolving to the place where we've gotten to. And we're so closely removed from having to worry about that. Like that was only a couple hundred yep. years ago yep. where 100%. like that, that was not that long ago in terms of like how long humans have existed. You know what I mean? So like we're, we're, we're looking at these new problems and coming up with all these brand new things that are really challenging in a completely different way because like we have we're wired to look for problems and then try to figure out and solve those problems. You know, I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And I also think there's another side to the story as well, which is that I think our society ha is like, <laughs> I think there's a lot of issues. I think food, like I, I went on my own health journey years ago and mm -hmm. I had always grown up eating for calories. And then I realized like, oh my goodness, when you actually look ingre at ingredients in food, like I no longer eat processed foods. I think our food system's messed up. Your food <laughs> system being messed up is gonna affect your gut health, which is gonna affect your mental health because mm -hmm. your gut's your biggest uptake of serotonin. Unfortunately, kids don't get much control if they grow up in a family where you sure. get Coca-Cola for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you've got all, all sorts of other things. So I think our food system's messed up. I think there's so much division in society. I think it's like, if we look through the past few years, it's been like, you name it, right? It's been like Israel versus Palestine, left versus right, men versus women, this race versus that race. I mean, there's so much division stoked by the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. I think that that creates mental health issues for people. I think we can go through like the sort of major facets of society, like inflation's through the roof. People are used to living a certain way. There's financial pressures. I think for sure people are going to create their own problems, but I also think there's another narrative, which is also like, we actually live in a society right now that people, unless they learn to do their own research to figure out like their own health journey, their own mental health journey, their own physical health, their own like 
actually be able to take proper accountability and learn proper tools for financial literacy for, mm-hmm. for like there's so much and and people grow up and they go through the school system and the school system like you know like i learned about like the war of 1812 like unfortunately that's not never really helped me and and right. we miss like within a school system like tax literacy financial literacy emotional literacy financial like there's so Even many credit things. card apr oh my like gosh i, I got you know my I mean? first credit card and i actually thought like oh i got free money like i people say yeah, that i right. literally that was my experience why and, wouldn't you nobody yeah. <laughs> ever told you any different you know what i mean <laughs> and then like or you see the interest rate and like you go well i learned percentages and you go 18 percent. so that yeah. means if i buy a hundred dollar <laughs> item I pay 18%. I only have to pay $18 on that item. It's like, that's not how APR works. Like it's going to compound and bury you in debt. Like into the infinite future. If you never just pay that thing off, you know what I mean? Like, but nobody's teaching that. And then you wake up and you're 34 and you have shit credit and you're in debt and you have no assets. And you're like, Oh, I should probably start thinking about like how I'm going to retire, yeah. you know, cause social security is not going to be, or there. you have no children, I don't have a pension, you know, and now you have all these like financial obligations right. for children and set your, your children up you have for monthly success. And, and, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. So I think there's like, there, for sure, there's like a whole issue there, but then there's the whole issue of like people are having issues because we have a society. Like I sometimes wonder, I used to always think it's the individual because the individual makes up the collective. I used to like stand by that. And then over time, as I started watching the different systems, like and how like the media influences people and how they influence like our values as people as well, our morals, like what we pay attention to or focus on. Like sometimes I think we get like broken out of the system. Like mm. if you go through enough suffering from this system, you're forced to kind of make your own way. Yeah. And I think that if people go through that early, like I, that was my experience, I feel very blessed for that. But that's not everybody's experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people are still really reliant and dependent and not really thinking about things that way. And so it's very easy to like get stuck in a system that is also creating problems for people mm-hmm. in kind of these insidious ways if they're not adept enough to sort of very pay attention. Because yeah. they're they're built on the guise of trust. Yes. You know, like yes. we're talking about before he record, like somebody says inject this thing into your body, I inject it into my body. Somebody gives us this pill, I take that pill. Somebody tells me, you know, that it, like, for instance, I had two friends and they have MS, both of them. And one of them took complete control over like everything that she put into her body and has been able to tell like a lot of the symptoms. And the other one continued along this terrible, terrible American diet of processed foods and just terrible bad food, you know, overweight. And then, their friends, you know, she goes over to her and was like, Hey, here's all the things that I'm doing. Like you should try this. You should try that. You should try this. And then her response was literally, I just feel like if those things worked, my doctor would have told me. And it's like, uh, Whoa, like you trust your doctor that much to where you're not even willing to hear somebody else out, to look at some science, to look at some data, to look at, you know what I mean? To look at all these other stories of other people who've helped themselves in your exact situation by changing these things. Like you're talking about your life here. You're not talking about some like inconsequential thing. You're talking about like insidious disease that's going to like cripple you if you don't try to do something to like, you would think that you would be like, sure. I'll try anything. You know what I mean? Like give, give give me some information. Like I'll at least check it out, but you're so brainwashed into thinking that, that, well, the, you know, my, the MD has all the answers. And it's like this place. So there's some, this theme that we talk about when it comes to attachment styles, we talk about this idea of individuation and I get people do this exercise and it's like, go through the seven areas of life. And I want you to talk like to come up with how individuated you are from one to 10. So in your career, are you doing something you love or are you doing something your parents told you to do Hmm. with your finances? Do you have your own financial goals or are you just following? 
feeling some idea of like, cause some people like they, some people have, we all have different personality needs, like mm-hmm. subconscious needs that drive us for some people. Their needs are like to have fancy things, right? Some people yeah. like prioritize that. That's part of their programming. That's something they truly authentically align with and want. Mm-hmm. But some people it's like, no, to save. Like I know for me, like I have a huge need around freedom. So like mm-hmm. I want to save my money to invest so I can be financially free. And yeah. that's in alignment with me. But everybody has like different meanings they give to money. Some mm-hmm. people it's power. Some people it's freedom. Some people it's security. Some people it's pleasure. But like if we don't know what that is for us, then we can get so caught living this like unindividuated life. And that goes across the board. That goes for your physical health area of life that goes for your relationships what you actually find meaningful in a relationship and your friendships your family relationships like it goes on and on but most people have never even taken the time to sit down and be like who am i like what do i want in these areas and i know speaking of health like i so i grew up did a lot of drugs (laughs) drank for a long time went through that paid for it later i I got diagnosed with hypothyroidism like however many years ago Mm. and at I had a doctor who was like, just go on thyroid medicine. Like, that's what you should do. And I was yeah. like, I will not be taking just pharmaceuticals for the next forever. Years. Yeah. I will be changing how I eat and how I live. And like, got rid of all those different symptoms that I was experiencing for a really long yeah. time, like brain fog and, you know, whatever else. But like, I really believe that like, your body's giving you feedback all the time. Your mm-hmm. feelings are giving you feedback all the time. Your body's giving you feedback. And if we are looking to figure out who we are, or what we're looking for from the outside in, we won't find it. But if we're willing to be like, who am I? What's important to me? What foods make me feel energized? What foods make me feel like crap? How, you know, what personal growth practices make me feel really good? What ways of thinking don't make me feel good? Like we have a mechanism that's working for us all the time to give us feedback. But most of us have been so externally focused because of things like the conditioning in society and because of the pressures from the world. But we've been so conditioned to stay externally focused that we like lose that relationship to self. Yeah, I think, there's like a few skills I feel like that if you can do them lead to personal growth in a ton of different areas. And I feel one of them is like third party observation of yourself yes. <laughs> and what you're <laughs> well just bringing up. Like that's one of those things that's really difficult to do because you're feel like whatever you're feeling is telling you something is to do something wildly different. Yeah. You know, wh- wh- whatever emotion it's feeling anger, it's feeling upset, it's feeling sad, it's feeling depressed. It's, it's feeling a stomach ache or like I have acid reflux or like even physical things too. You know, it's like if you can just take a step back when you're going through that and just start question interrogating yourself and questioning yourself from a third party perspective, as if you were taking yourself out of your body and asking yourself questions as somebody else, what conclusions might you come to? in that particular scenario, right? Like if you are getting stomach aches every day, okay, well, why, why? is that happening? <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I had some, I, I just thought I was messed up. I had stomach aches all my childhood, but like in retrospect, it's pretty simple to look at the fact that like I was drinking so much milk, like all the time. Uh-huh. And now I rarely ever do, but I rarely ever have stomach aches. And if I do have like ice cream or pizza or certain foods like that, then I get a stomach ache. It's like, it's very simple just to be like, Oh, why was I having stomach aches? Probably because I was drinking more milk than I was drinking water. And it's the, the best solution forward is not to just take a pill so that I can continue to drink milk. It's to stop drinking milk and drink water. The problem is that that's not a sexy answer. 
Yeah. Like it it actually takes work to, to eliminate bad habits and instill good habits. And you can't just like go out of the cabinet, pop a pill and then keep doing all the stuff that you want to do. So it's a way less sexy answer, but ultimately it is the answer. And you never get to those answers if you don't have the ability to question yourself. Like, why am I feeling jealous right now? Why am I feeling angry right now? What happened? What, like, what is causing this really uncomfortable, terrible emotion that's in my gut? What is that? You know, and can I do something to try to make sure that I don't end up in this situation again, if it's not a situation that I want to be in. And we totally live in the society that just pushes, like treat the symptoms of everything. Yes. Right. Like There's a stomach ache, yeah. <laughs> take a Pepsid or whatever it's called. And, yeah. and so like, and, and it ruins like the, the golden nuggets of our life are in the root cause, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, you feel the jealousy, push it down, drink it away, distract right. yourself on social media. You feel that like, and it's like, Hey, if we keep dealing with things by trying to push them away from ourselves or yeah. trying to just avoid them, you lose all the like actual really deep stuff that's in the feedback that you're getting in the first place. You're just punting the problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> literally you know, and you're, you're gonna pay take, for it it's, exactly it's sexier you said oh it's not sexy in the short but it's it's better in the long run like mm-hmm. it's always going to be better to be like okay find out what's what this is telling me what's the feedback yeah and then go into it something that i did that was really cool is i did a whole food sensitivity panel so you go mm-hmm. get your blood drawn yeah you find out all your food sensitivities all the things that make that don't make you feel good i did genetic testing one of the things that was the craziest thing for me ever is i learned i don't methylate properly i don't know if you mm-hmm. know anything about that but mm-hmm. of the population doesn't methylate properly. It's like your body can't convert B12 and and B9 to their active form. So Mm. basically you like your body's not using vitamin B, which messes up your hormones, gives you thyroid issues, like all these different things. And all you have to do to solve the problem is literally just, well, first I had to take a genetic test to find that out, but then all you have to do is take active forms of B vitamins. And that was like life-changing to me. Mm. But it's so funny because if you're willing to just like dig, dig, dig to like, okay, what's the root? What's like the last like rung on the ladder to see what's happening here? You can make a lot of changes that way. Right, exactly. But like I said, that's that's too much work. Yeah. We're we're already way too much work in here. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Like, just give me the pill. Give me like give me give, like that's that's why I mean that's why supplements are easier to sell than gym memberships. Yeah. Even though they're objectively way more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. And do way less for you than actually going to the gym does. And sweating. And it's just, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, they sure. they're they're gonna sell. What you'll you'll buy people will buy three hundred dollars worth of supplements and spend 20 bucks on a gym membership and like not want to pay a personal trainer to actually help them is like, well, going to the gym is hard. Yeah. Like every day waking up and making priority to like go work out and sweat. That's difficult. Like popping some powder in, in some water and drinking it is like way easier. You know what I mean? Of course, supplements are going to sell better than gym memberships are going to sell. You know what I mean? It's just, we're, we're wired to look for the easiest possible route and not actually have to do any thinking for ourselves. And it's, it's pretty detrimental. And I think like one of the other things that's so important is, so there's something like at the subconscious level and it's called like, we all have, I was sort of mentioning it in passing, but we all have personality needs. So we have like a subconscious set of needs that drives every person. Mm. For some people, unfortunately, those needs are comfort and security. Mm. For other people, their freedom or their personal growth or their connection or, you know, we're wired differently because of the different experiences we have. And essentially how it works, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but it's like everything 
that you get positive emotional associations to but have a void of, you're wired to seek. So for example, if you grow up in a household where you've got good associations to connecting with people, but then maybe you move to a new city and as a kid and you miss connecting with people, well, your subconscious goes into kind of overdrive to try to like go get that need met or yearning for that need and it will become a program. And these programs drive our personalities. One thing that's actually really interesting is if you live in alignment with your needs, you're also more likely to want to overcome challenges. Hmm. So you'll do the hard things, right? Like for me, health became a thing. So I did the hard thing that became a need when I was like, oh, my health isn't feeling so good however many years ago. Yeah. And and so you'll do the hard things or if personal growth something for people. Okay, well then you'll do the hard things. You'll ask yourself the hard questions. But for some people, they're just wired to think, okay, well, I just need the comfort or security. And that's not their fault. It's like they're programming from their environment. Sure. But we have to actually work to rewire those things so that we're willing to see our world differently. Yeah. That's one thing I've been doing a lot of thinking around lately is at what point in our lives do we become a better picture? Like, do we become more our choices versus our environment? Right. Cause I like, I love this quote that says when you're born, you look like your environment. When you die, you look like your choices. Mm. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about like, well, where in there does that switch happen? Right. Cause like when you're five, you're mostly your environment. Yeah, like you yeah. don't, you haven't really had For an agency sure. or the ability to make many choices about your life. Yeah. When you're 65, you're pretty much your choices at that point. Yes. But like where in there, do, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the, where does the switch happen? Cause like so much of it's due like our personality and like what you're saying, the inputs that we have, the things that we watch, the things we listen to, the models that we've seen in front of us and all those things. But like it's at some point it's like, well, now you're actively choosing to engage in this line of thinking or like, does that make sense? Oh, like, makes where so, are we, much so sense. where are we going and how do we, how, like, how do you shake yourself out of that and then just start choosing something different? For me, the easiest thing ever, and I'll die by this answer, but for me, the easiest thing ever is learn to reprogram your subconscious. Because what you can do is you can take your conscious mind, observe your subconscious, say, okay, what are these limiting beliefs that are not working for me? What are the needs that I have? What's important to me? What goals do I want to set and accomplish in my life? And then what I do very regularly is I'll be like, okay, what are the kind of like the next five moves? Where do I want to go? And then what limiting beliefs do I have about myself that are blocking me? And then this thing, so going back to talking about needs for a second, if you have subconscious needs and you try to do something that's out of alignment with them, like that's what self-sabotage is. So there's no like real such thing as self-sabotage. We don't sit and say, oh, it's 5 a.m. I'm getting up. I'm actually going to consciously choose to sabotage yeah, myself to sabotage today. Myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're not choosing that. <laughs> so what happens is like our experience of self-sabotage is that your conscious mind has a set of goals and your subconscious mind has different priorities, which are your subconscious personality needs. So like, I'll just give an example. So I had this client and she came to me one day and I've been doing a lot of needs work and a lot of belief work with people. And she said, I have this issue that like every single year my new year's resolution comes and I'm like, I'm going to eat healthy and I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to learn to like exercise and do stuff. And she's like, and then every single year, day five, I sabotage. Like I just mess up. I don't care. I'm back to like eating chocolate, whatever, what's going on. So we looked at her like needs and her highest needs were social connection, family, comfort and security. And so what happens is your conscious mind says, okay, I'm going to go to the gym and eat healthy. And your subconscious mind says, no, it's going to take time away from social time, family time, comfort, security. And so what you have to do is when you know your hierarchy of personality needs, you can tie your goals into them. So you can kind of like hack the system in a sense. So what she did is she was, we got her to sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to go to social 
exercise classes, go with friends. I'm going to go on walks with my family. I'm going to take cooking classes with my husband. I'm going to make sure that if I'm going to go to the gym on my own, that I research it first so I feel comfortable and secure. I'm going to wear comfy clothes or work out in my home. And then you can build habits around those things. Mm. And then because your subconscious is responsible for that, like 95, 97% of stuff, your thoughts, beliefs, emotions, then unless you are setting a goal and then aligning it with your subconscious needs and then also reprogramming your limiting beliefs that stand in the way because she could get it all in alignment but then believe I can't do anything, I'm always going to fail and then that's going to sabotage her too. But if you remove the limiting beliefs and you align with your needs, you can get rid of the resistance that would stop you and now your conscious and subconscious work together instead of apart. So I think like, Anybody can change. I really believe this because I've seen this firsthand for a very long time now, including myself. But I think it's like people don't have the right tools. And then I think we go through this experience of if you don't, the other thing that changes us is hard times, right? Like if we don't know how to consciously change and kind of stay ahead of it by engaging the subconscious in the process and getting that stuff out of the way, usually we individuate and have that like, okay, now we become who we are because we had a lot of hard choices we were faced with and we did or didn't make them. And so you either end up, I've seen people for sure who just were their environment their whole lives. I've had clients who are in their seventies, you know, they get dragged in by their spouse, maybe come for one or two sessions to a couple's dynamic. They don't want to be there. And they're sitting there going, like you can see that they were unwilling to change didn't change from their environment. They're just literally the the result of their programming. And then you wonder, like, you could almost make a philosophical argument, like, does that person really have free will? Yeah. Or are they just like the product of their subconscious programming from their environment? And that, like, it's a strange thing to think about, but I, I think there's like a almost philosophical argument to make for that. I love this. This has been such an awesome conversation. I wish we had more time, but we're running out of time. So before we go, where can people continue to learn more from you? So I have a YouTube channel. I put out daily free content called the personal development school, personaldevelopmentschool.com is our website. We have a free attachment style quiz on there. If anybody wants to learn their attachment style, see what it is, get all the sort of, we get a free report to people of like their core wounds, their big needs, how to sort of like assess those things. And that's pretty much it. Sweet. Personaldevelopmentschool.com. Go check out all the amazing things that she's putting out over there. And man, seriously, thank you. This is, this is, this this is is a blast. Yeah. We've got to do a part two sometime next time you're out in Vegas. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet and leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.